0: Welcome to the Faith and Culture Now podcast. Today I'm very happy to have Alex Mitchell and Randall Worley with me. Alex and Randall, good to have you guys here. Great to be here.
1: Good to be back. Thank you.
0: Yeah, well, today we are going to talk about a couple of issues in um, Christianity that I think are important. And the first one, Uh, is important in Christianity, but I think it's also just important in a broad sense for our culture. A few weeks ago, I saw an article in the news written uh, about Tim Cook, who um, is with Apple, and uh, he was talking about the use of technology and how it gathers data, and one of the things he said in the article was that, quote, we believe that ethical technology is technology that works for you It's technology that helps you sleep, not keeps you up. It tells you when you've had enough. It gives you space to create or draw or write or learn, not refresh just one more time. And so um, he talked about how a lot of social media platforms gather information from their users and how they take that information for their own benefit And uh, what he really is trying to get at is, does our business serve our customers or does it take advantage of our customers to serve our business? And uh, when it comes to how information is gathered about people and what people share and what people do on social media, I think these are really important questions. Clearly, uh, we all like to hit that refresh button and see if uh, any new stories have come up from people we know or to see if anyone's commented on things that we've posted or other things of that nature, but what are your thoughts on ethical technology and how it should work for us and help us sleep at night as opposed to uh, keep us from going to bed when we should because we're just so addicted to to Instagram or whatever else, so.
2: Yeah, I I saw that article, uh, you sent it to us and uh, I was really happy to hear that Apple seems to be getting involved on the humane, movement side of things, you know, uh, because I I think they probably have some clout to make a difference in the, in the market. I, I I don't know if any of you have seen the documentary or uh, the film, uh, The Social Dilemma. Yes. Uh, And I remember watching that and just being uh, appalled at uh, what the money making model has become for these, Mega corporations like Google and Twitter and Facebook, where not only are they, are they simply going after the money, um, but they're creating AIs that create algorithms that exploit kind of neurological weaknesses in human beings. You know, there are certain patterns of behavior that we don't even consciously realize we're falling into. And uh, these AIs have no interest in whether it's morally right to exploit these kinds of things. All they're doing is generating the numbers that that have dollars behind them. Uh, and, and you can see a lot of the negative things. You know, we talk about fake news and the proliferation of, uh, of false information and very. Yeah. But of course, if you have something really juicy that you're putting out there it's going to get a lot of hits. And if that's generating money, then there's no incentive to fact check anything or, or worry about the social or even personal consequences of these things on people that are consuming it. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm, I I believe it is one of the huge issues we're facing as a culture. And I think uh, I'm really pleased to hear that there are people that are trying to, to, to curb
1: some of this, to, to move us in a, in a different direction. Yeah, I am definitely pessimistically optimistic, <laughs> I guess is a way, because I, I, I don't trust Apple either. I don't trust Tim Cook. Yeah. And I feel like there is something that will come, will backfire out of this, but I definitely agree with this uh, motive. Uh, my wife and I were just sharing on our, uh, so our, our YouTube channel, um, about one of our addictions. And she said hers was social media and she just, everybody has a struggle with social media. I, I have that, but she was like, no, mine is much worse. And I had God convicting me and telling me, Hey, you are on this way too much. And I could see the difference between her and I, and that's not the Whole point, and again, I'm not putting on her own blast because she confessed it, and we have a, a video about that if you ever want to watch that. Um, but it is such a—it's just trying to pull you in. I see how they do reels in uh, Instagram, and they're just—they're chasing the money, and they're just constantly chasing your eyeballs. And today uh, is my day off of work, and so I was just kind of relaxing before I get to my personal work. Or, working on my channel and I mean, maybe doing stuff around the house. And I just wanted to relax. And I was on social media and it just, it just stressed me out. It did not bring me any peace (laughs) and no relaxation. And that's kind of where people go for to, uh, to bide their time to uh, uh, throughout their day. And it's not giving them rest. It's creating more stress. It's creating more angst because they're angrily clicking on things. Typically. Um, I find myself searching for good news or just personal news about people. I'm like, I don't care about your political opinion, whether I agree with it or not. I just want to see how, how I, what, what's happening in your life. Yeah. And um, that is just, it's pulling us apart. Yeah, Yeah, I think that the, uh, obviously the polarization is part of the algorithm
0: and it's an inadvertent part of the algorithm. I don't think that the social media companies are trying to polarize people, but people are inclined to liking certain things. And as a result, they see more and more of things they like, which causes them to be more polarized from people who like other things. And um, this is certainly problematic. And, um, you know, I think about the I I think about the new streaming services. Um, There is a a new one now that's about to hit in in March from Paramount. And a lot Mm -hmm. of these streaming services are sort of replacing uh, cable. I mean, cable users have been dropping uh, in droves. I think that uh, on average, there's like 200,000 fewer subscriptions to cable television on some format every quarter. And it's been that way for the last couple of years now, which is a huge um, thing. But a lot of these companies now are creating these, um, these their own streaming platforms where they are having their own customers pay just to get their product. And I think about ethical technology and things like Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and so on. And I go, you know, what if we just paid five bucks a month to have Facebook or to have Twitter and there were no ads and it knocked out a bunch of the polarization? Of course, the problem with that is that then the companies wouldn't make nearly the money they're making you know, the billions and billions they're making off of, off of the ads. But if there was an alternative to Facebook where I could just pay five bucks a month and have no ads and no advertising on it, uh, and you weren't worried about the algorithm as much, I think it would be such a much more enjoyable platform just because a lot of the stuff that's there keeping you up and keeping you engaged and keeping you stressed out would be gone. Of course, that's not to say that people wouldn't still put pictures up of what they've cooked or their cats or things of that nature. But um, uh, like you, Alex, you know, I'm, I'm interested in get, catching up with people and hearing how people are doing and seeing what's going on in their life. I don't really care about all the political stuff. Yesterday, somebody on my Facebook feed um, had posted a comment that if you're a Republican that still supports Abbott, just go ahead and let him know so he can delete you now. So, uh, you know, it's uh, you know it's just like, well, I mean, I get that, you know, people may or may not agree with what Abbott's wanting to do with reopening Texas, but like, should we really be not being friends over something that someone we don't even know said? Probably not. And if we're that stressed about it, we probably need to take a step back from our social media and take a little bit of a breather. But uh, speaking of, of breathers and, and uh, uh, sort of taking... step back to really look at things. Um, Randall, you wanted to talk today a little bit about transactional Christianity, Mm -hmm. and uh, I think it's important for us to really keep in mind how even our faith should be something that helps us sleep at night Mm -hmm. and doesn't sort of keep us awake wondering, you know, what thing we need to do next to make sure we're still in right relationship with God. So uh, I'll let you go ahead and sort of take it from here.
2: Yeah, okay. Well, I recently uh, was preaching through John chapter 2, and uh, came to the John's account of Jesus cleansing the temple, and you know, people debate whether it happened once or twice. But anyway, in John's account, uh, what Jesus does after, after casting out all the people who are making commerce in the temple precinct, uh, he says, do not make my Father's house a house of market. Uh, and I, I think the surface reading of that is, you know, you shouldn't make a place of worship a place of of just making money. Uh, that you know, the focus should be God, uh, and I think that's that's kind of the the immediate uh, way we would understand that. But just thinking through the discussion that follows after that, um, I think there's more to it than just that. It's it's uh, Jesus. I think is challenging this whole idea that they've. They've structured worship in such a way that uh, it is a transaction with God. You bring what God demands of you, and you are given assurances that having paid your part, God will deliver on his end and bring you the blessings that, that you can expect. And by, by saying, forget about the whole marketplace mentality altogether. Think of it as being invited to my father's house. Uh, God is opening his home and welcoming us in. And it, there's no transaction involved. It's, it's an open dinner table. You know, it's, it's that kind of, of, of an approach that Jesus is trying to to, to communicate. And I, I got to thinking about it. You know, it's easy to look back on first century Judaism and be critical. Uh, but I think even in the Christianity of today, we have this problem, this idea of, of transaction as the core experience of Christianity, where, uh, you know, in, in the more uh, I guess, high church traditions, you have a whole set of rituals that are meant to guarantee to you that God delivers the salvation and the good things he's promising you. Even things like penance or memorizing prayers, repeat them X amount of times, uh, all these kinds of things, or things like, you know, we're in the season of Lent. Uh, The idea for many people is, well, if I give something up for God, then uh, in some way, God will be more favorably disposed towards me. Uh, I will gain something from it, or I'll make some kind of a vow. And, and even if you go kind of the opposite of extreme in, in Christianity to kind of the faith movement and the name it and claim it people, oftentimes there, there's the idea uh, you have to sow a financial uh, investment, uh, and then God will reward you with health and, and wealth and blessing and all these kinds of things. And it strikes me that that makes Christianity just like the, the pagan religions of the ancient world. Their whole religious structure was transactional. You, ritual and uh, spells and all these things, that was just the mechanisms people developed to get from the gods the things they wanted. And Jesus, I think, is telling us that that's not at all how we need to approach God, that it's not about this transaction, what do I have to pay to get God to give me what I want from Him, but that it's about communion and intimacy with Him. And uh, my question was, how do we practice in our faith an encounter with God that is not
1: based on a transactional paradigm? I think you just answered it with that last question or statement that you said is, is intimacy. Transactions is not personal. It's not, it's simple and it's clean. Pharisees loved it because it didn't work re- there. It was just steps one, two, and three, and I'm done. There's nothing deeper. It's, and Jesus came for the heart. So to you know what I'm, you're following that thought there. Um, and that is the biggest issue. When we go into personal time, or when we have a personal relationship with God, it gets messy and our Western culture is not a very personal culture. We're becoming more and more isolated. And to, to do that, it's going to require us to get into each other's lives again and to say, Hey, you're not doing this correctly. And also practice encouraging people and saying, Hey, you're doing this really well. And then saying, I have to confess that I think I'm getting a little jealous that you're doing something so well, and I'm not. And It's messy. That's the point is it gets really messy and churches that are really big. How do how do they, a group that is that large and not messy has to be so impersonal to not tear itself apart. And that's, I don't know, it's kind of an interesting thought in and of itself right there. And so going to a transactional mindset, whether it's so subtle and it really takes a mind as you were saying to you were realizing that more you start to perceive it and you go oh wow this is very transactional and like my final thought in that it was it's kind of an abstract connection to this thought that i had been thinking of more recently because my wife and i will study old testament book then new testament and go back and forth back and forth it's it's very refreshing and i realized like she she is newer in the faith and she asks really great questions and she goes why do People really like the New Testament so much. I don't get it. Like I enjoy the Old Testament. There's stories. It's so much easier to listen to and read. And I thought about it for a while. And I, have, I finally came up with one thought is like, well, the New Testament is a bunch of rules. It has stories about Jesus, which we like, but then it has a lot of do this and do that. And people like that, that falls into transactional Christianity. And the Old Testament is much more difficult because it's outside of the Levitical law, outside of the law. There's not a lot of do this, do that. It's a lot of, this is what happened. And you have to really spend time understanding who God is, understanding the relationship between the Israelites and God. And there's so much depth there. There's so much greatness there, but you have to sit and you have to study and you have to really dive into that. And people don't want that. They want transaction. It's easy. It's simple. I can, and it almost goes falling into Catholicism, Roman Catholicism, if we want to be very fair. And I'll, I'll stop there. I think I'm going on too far.
0: Oh, that's very good. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad you chose this topic, Randall. I saw a video the other day where someone was talking about when we share the gospel, we tell people things like you got to confess your sins you've got to pray this prayer Mm -hmm. and then you don't go to hell and so the idea from that is that if you do this and this then you don't receive this punishment and it's very transactional and the person actually used the word transactional in the video that i saw um you know obviously we don't um teach that and you know in christianity we teach that salvation is by grace through faith and you know i mean i think the sinner's prayer is a great way to sort of you know Know for yourself that you've made this conscious decision to believe in Christ, but you're not saved by praying this prayer. You're not right. saved by praying any prayer. In fact, if you're praying the prayer, you've probably already received salvation because your heart's moved enough to actually pray the prayer. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a whole other issue. Um the um the thing that I think is interesting here too is the idea of control. And um, we like mm-hmm. to be in control and we like God to do what we want God to do. So we think to ourselves, if I do this and this and this, then God will do this and this and this. And it's all for me. And it's all self-focused. Uh, on the flip side, churches go, how do we get people to do what they need to do to live the Christian life? We tell them to do this and this and this and this. And then it sort of keeps them in the same sense of control or being controlled so that they are hopefully living out the faith. I think that both, um, the church and people, uh, who are trying to live the Christian life tend to, I think, start from a, a good place in their heart. It just doesn't always end up there. And um, I think this transactional idea of our faith is very headed. You know, uh, it doesn't matter, um, you know, whether you uh, have been a Christian for 50 years or five years, you're saved by the same exact blood of Christ and you're equal in Christ and you both have the same access to Christ. And I think that when we sort of get this market mentality of, if I do this, then God's going to do this, uh, what we're really saying is, I'm acting this way to get what I want, and not I'm acting this way because it's the right thing to do, and I tell people in some of my classes, you know, that humans are an end in and of themselves. They're not a means to an end. We have no right to take advantage of others to get from them what we want, but there's no reason... Why we shouldn't think that same idea translates to our relationship with God. God is an end in and of Himself, and to treat Him in such a way to try to manipulate Him to get what we want is incredibly foolish. Because God knows our thoughts, He knows our hearts, He knows our mind, and He knows exactly what we're doing. We're not fooling Him at all. And so we as Christians need to really consider, uh, you know, why am I doing this? Why do we do this as Christians? Why do we not do this? How do we better? practice this, not for the sake of getting something, but for the sake of living in a way that's more obedient and more worshipful to Christ. Uh, One last thing I'll sort of throw in here is that our current worship songs, many of them tend to be very focused on the people in the congregation, not on the God we're singing about. And I think that does nothing but proliferate this idea that the faith is for me, not for um, the, the, Um, you know, the point of coming to God in obedience and worship and saying, I want to have a relationship with you. I want to be right with you because I know that when I'm living within your will, I tend to have a better, um, a better walk in life, just more peace in my heart and so on, right? It's not about, you know, getting financially blessed or getting this job or this car or any of that kind of stuff. It's about being able to say, I have a clear conscience before the Lord I can serve him, and we can communicate together, which gives a
2: deeper sense of meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life. Yeah, I I think one of the things we struggle with in the Christian faith is uh, morality, and you talk about this. You know, you come in faith to Christ, and uh, you know, you begin, as Paul would put it, uh, in grace, and somewhere on the way, you step out of that into something else, because we immediately tell new believers, these are the things you're not supposed to do. These are the things you're supposed to do. These are the patterns of behavior that that should accompany the Christian walk. And we can fall into this idea that I have to do these things to maintain God's favor. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And it becomes even... I think a lot of people that fall into this don't do so self-centeredly. They just feel like this is what God wants from me. I need to do all this to keep him happy with me. And Uh it it makes the Christian walk burdensome where it's completely backwards from what it is supposed to be. The the transformed behavior is the reward Uh for a heart that is focused on Christ. Not the other way around. Yeah. Well, and the change of behavior is not the way we get intimacy with Christ. But as as we are as we are in Christ and and near to Him, and our hearts are focused on Him, He transforms who we are, so that what we're doing changes. But if that's not the order of things, uh, and and the just the behavior change is not the result but the means by which we're trying to get there, uh, then Christianity becomes a huge burden.
0: Yeah, I think the word that sticks out in my mind here is guilt. You know, when we try to work our way into a good relationship with God, we are very guilty because we never do enough. Right. But when we work out a relationship with God, he changes our desires to uh, help us sort of want to live in such a way that is pleasing to him because we're close to him and it's, it's good to feel close to him. You know, yeah. uh, I, I think uh, this is really good. This is really important. I think it leads very well into our next topic, um, uh, which is Alex's and Alex wanted to talk today about Robbie Zacharias and a little bit about the issues of his sort of fall from grace, if you will. Um, and so Alex, I'll go ahead and let you uh, kind of start us off here.
1: I think want is a strong word for this topic. (laughs) Uh, it's, I think it's, it's just been something for maybe a lack of a better word, haunting me. And I wouldn't even say that he was somebody who heavily influenced me. I just know that he was a person of great influence in my realm of Christianity. And I respected him a lot for, uh, what he had accomplished. But I had remembered like two instances, stories that will circle back to this is, um, you know, I had heard of, I can't verify if this is true, but I'd heard from a pastor that, you know, Billy Graham was known for rip, like unplugging any TV. And if there was a TV that couldn't be unplugged, he would rip it out of the wall. Like he was, and at that time, I mean, I think that was the extent of, Outside influence in your life, <laughs> and but the point was, is he was cutting off that influence, and then I had listened to uh, or heard that uh, a Christian rapper that I, I really uh, appreciate and Lecrae, that and him and his group, they always travel together. They always are. Um, He says, like I have people that are in my life. They know my dark secrets. They know the things because I need people to hold me accountable. And he goes, when when we travel, we don't sleep in our own hotel rooms. We have somebody that sleeps in a hotel room with us. And I was just like, yeah, that makes sense. And how in the world did this dude, like, why is there, why do we trust people? Like, I don't get it. Nobody in the Bible, except for Jesus, ended the race strong. I mean, arguably Paul, because I mean, we don't really know the ins and outs, but it really made me reflect on when he said, I finished the race strong. And I just go, wow, this dude did, because I can't think of anybody else who really finished the race strong. Like everybody else in the Bible, King David, a man after God's own heart, royally messed up. Why do we keep thinking that people that are doing great things for the Lord, or we mistakenly, anyway, now we won't get to that, but are doing great things for the Lord, think that they're infallible and that they're not going to stumble why is there not always a level of accountability that we are having where we need to be vulnerable to two people somewhere because it yeah. always seems like church staff all these types of high level people understandably so they're cautious about their life because it can be misconstrued and it can be misquoted and ripped their lives apart i get that but if you can't, I, I, you know where I'm going with that. Like you need to have yeah. people in your life.
0: You know, I don't know if I feel like it's as much that people feel like they are in, you know, infallible or you know, in a place where they're beyond falling in prey to certain things like this, as much as it is that um, with power comes... Um,
1: don't say great responsibility.
0: Well, no, not responsibility. I was gonna say with power comes influence. Mm -hmm. and, and with influence tends to come pride. Yes. And I think that with pride, people start thinking I'm who I am. So I can justify doing this. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a very different sort of concept than, you know, Hey, as a Christian, I know I don't need to be acting this way. And I know that I need to, you know, try to be in better fellowship with the Lord um you know, but i think when people are in positions of power they tend to think well i've done all this great so i can justify doing this other thing over here and mm-hmm. instead of getting accountability what they tend to do is work
1: on their abilities to decept deceive people and and practice deception well, um, my yeah i'm not asking them to seek out accountability mm-hmm. i'm asking i'm saying why wasn't there just Why isn't accountability just a structural idea built into Christianity? God had to send, I can't remember the prophet's name, to David to call him out on his sin. Um, And while you are walking rightly with God, because there has to be a point where God's going to be using that you are, why aren't you seeking out accountability then? Because me now, I am so afraid of my future. That if I ever become any type of successful, that I'm going to finish my race incorrectly, that I'm going to steer off into heresy one way or the other or something. I'm so afraid of those things because if I'm being used well by the by God, I know the enemy hates it and he's going to come after me and he's going to use my weaknesses. And I hear testimonies on YouTube from other people who have fought for uh, against sin or secret sin and then... 15 years into their marriage, all of a sudden, it just creeps in out of nowhere. And I was like, oh my gosh, I didn't, I thought like that this couldn't happen. Like if you, but wow. And so where is that level of accountability your whole life? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. i in all of
2: this, uh, I'm reminded of, of some of the stronger um, words of warning in, in the New Testament. Uh, Paul, in a couple of places, warns about that kind of thing. Uh, A good example is in in 1 Corinthians 6. Do not be deceived. Neither sexually immoral people, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality passively, nor those who practice it actively, nor thieves, nor greedy persons, not drunkards, not bullies, not swindlers, will inherit God's kingdom. And I don't think Paul means there to list, uh, give us a list of unpardonable sins.
1: Mm.
2: What he's saying is, you know, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. And there's a pattern of transformation that the Holy Spirit should be causing in us. And if, if we can uh, harbor absolute rebellion against God without any sense of, of uh, this is not right, this is something I'm struggling against, but something that that you can feel like you can happily incorporate into your Christian walk, then the warning is don't deceive yourself. You might not be in the faith. Mm-hmm. And okay. again, I think this is geared towards self-evaluation, not towards us evaluating others. I don't think there's any way for me externally to, to make these kinds of decisions, but, To me, it's a constant warning Mm -hmm. that if I'm serious about Christ, then uh, that has to be what I'm after. Not not a huge name in ministry, not, you know, recognition, not it has to be about him. And if I ever lose sight of that, uh, it, it becomes to me a dangerous indicator of where my heart was all along. And, and that, you know, the more things that have come out, it's become clear that with Zacharias, this was not a one-time mistake. Uh-uh. This was a long-held pattern of behavior that uh, makes me question his whole uh-huh. claim to Christianity. Uh-huh. Uh, and I, I think people outside the faith rightly would look upon this as absolute hypocrisy. Um, and, you know, I, I can in no way defend that kind of behavior. Uh, and God alone knows the state of the heart and, and whether a person, uh, you know, we're not saved by being right or perfect, obviously. Um, but I, I do think in all of this, there, there is an important reminder I, I you talk about these kinds of issues with people in positions of great influence. Part of the problem is our cult of a of personality in Christianity, uh, we love to name drop, and we love to be around people that everybody knows who they are, and, and be in churches where the pastor is some hotshot, and you know we 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 are drawn to that, and to some degree that that betrays some idolatry in our own hearts uh, that we are pursuing men, not God. Um, but I'm reminded in Deuteronomy, the instructions for kings: don't get too many horses don't have too much money, don't have too many wives, and those have been consistently through human history the downfall of, of people in terms of the faith. It's been money and power and influence and uh, women, you know, uh, sexual immorality. That, those have been the Achilles heel of people in positions of great influence, and... Uh, you know, in Deuteronomy, the instruction is for the person who is king to have a copy of God's law and read it daily so that he doesn't think he's better than everybody else. Uh, you know, that these kinds of things need to be bred into our, our approach to the Christian faith, that, that whoever we are, we're just recipients I think
0: that it's important to keep in mind the idea of community in all of this. Uh, you know, it was mentioned earlier today that we were becoming more and more individualistic in the Western culture. But Christianity is a communal faith. And when mm-hmm. we're living in the midst of the community, we're, we're sort of, you know, being ourself and not hiding our junk. And in the Christian culture in America, we try to hide our junk and come to church. Like we've got it all figured out, got it all worked out. So then when something happens, whether you're Ravi Zacharias or whether you're a deacon who is only known to a few hundred people, um, people are surprised and shocked when uh, things happen that are sort of astounding uh, in a negative way, because we well, How could they do that? We had no idea what was going on. Well, because our culture has um, essentially conditioned us to hide the things that we have going on and not to be authentic and not to be who we need to be. And that, I think, leads into the idea of the transactional Christianity. If I do this, if I do this, I'll get this. And if I can keep this hidden, I'm going to be able to have this opportunity and so on and so on. Um, You know, the fact of the matter is, this is not a transactional faith apart from the single transaction of that Christ died for us. Uh, but he saves us, He redeems us, He calls us, He glorifies us, he justifies us, he adopts us. It's all on his part. And um, all humans are one decision away from making morally good choice. and all humans are one decision away from making a morally vile choice. And all people are capable of both great good, and dire evil. And so we shouldn't be surprised when someone, even in power, has a deep, dark secret. At the same time, as Christians, we don't need to let guilt overshadow who we are in Christ. We are free in Christ. And just like technology needs to point us towards freedom and point us towards uh, building something good, uh, so our faith should help us Build something good in our life, and that comes through having a right relationship with Christ. It's not about doing this and this and this, it's about being right with the Lord so that He can direct our path, so that He can lead us to do the things that are right. And when we sin, we confess that sin, we pick ourselves up by the bootstraps, and we keep going. Uh, We don't let that hold you know, that guilt hold over us uh, in a way that is crippling and keeps us from continuing in ministry. Uh, And the reason we don't do that is because uh, Christ has already forgiven us of all sins. In fact, I would argue that we don't even need to ask forgiveness for sins at this point. We need to confess sins. And the difference is this. When I ask for forgiveness, I'm saying shed a little more blood for me. But Christ already forgave our sins on the cross, all sins, past, present, and future. When we confess our sins, what we're saying is, God, I know that I have been redeemed by you. But I also recognize that my recent actions are outside of your will for me. And because they are outside of my will for, your will for me, they affect my walk with you. And I need to confess that so we can get back on the right track and continue moving forward in our relationship together. Well, uh, listen, it's good to have you guys on today. I think that these are important topics. It's It's important for us when dealing with technology to think about, is this something that's going to negatively influence me? Am I giving too much of myself to this technology? And as a Christian, how is this affecting the cause of Christ? And how is my use of this technology affecting me as a Christian? I think when it comes to looking at accountability, we have to ask ourselves when we, when we do anything, how is this going to affect me as a Christian? How does my participation in this affect me? How does it affect the cause of Christ? And if it's not a good <laughs> not a good effect, then we need to either get some accountability to help keep us from it uh, or we also need to, um, you know, sort of realize where we're at and figure out what needs to, to happen there. Yes, sir.
1: I, I did have a closing thought, and it's something that um, my wife, is. she's from South America, so she comes from a different culture that is much more intimate, much more mm-hmm. into people's lives. And that has definitely been a struggle with her here, um, even with good-intending people. Mm -hmm. but she said, you know, uh, or in a conversation, it was thought of or summed up as a lot of times we are very willing to talk about the things that are going on in our lives, but we're not willing to talk about how it, how it makes us feel that these things Mm -hmm. are happening. And I know for me, I'm, I'm an intimate person. I don't mind opening up and I like to be into other people's lives and to encourage, but I know that I have a hard time asking more personal questions even though that's what i like to do and even with her i i felt struggled to do that sometimes because i was like i feel rude almost i feel like you should open up to me and i think that is definitely something to reflect on is asking those people that are close to you those difficult questions because sometimes they're waiting for you to truly ask because they because i i was like those that feels rude. She goes, no, I feel loved when you ask me those intimate questions. When you ask me very personal questions, I feel loved afterward. And I was like, I had to reflect on that because I think a lot of times I personally stop from asking those intimate questions that can really shed light into people's lives much better because I don't want to push. I don't want to be rude, but sometimes it's it's hard because sometimes people will one way or the other. It puts us into a place of vulnerability,
0: mm-hmm. but the vulnerable also allows us to um, grow as people. And it creates, um, or it should create, a place of safety. You know, Mm -hmm. vulnerability should create a place of safety. And uh, I think when we look at our Christian walk as as a point of transaction, if I do this, then this, if I do this, then this, then we lose sight of the importance of the relationship. And we don't need to be vulnerable just with one another and confessing and holding each other accountable. We need to be vulnerable with God Mm -hmm. to grow in that relationship. And it's okay to argue with God and to share your feelings with God and to have conversations with God about what you're going through and how you're struggling. And as Christians, it's not just about if I do this, then God's going to do this. But it's about here's where I am. God's with me in this. And we need to hash this out and and really have those meaningful conversations with the Lord. So as we leave this podcast, I encourage you to make good choices with regard to your own uh, practice in um, social media. And I encourage you to be vulnerable with God and to work on your relationship with him uh, so that uh, and to reflect and think, you know, am I doing this to get this transactional benefit? Or am I doing this because I want to grow in relationship and fellowship with the Lord? And when it comes to your own sins and the sins of others around you, think about how you can help them with grace, respond with grace, how you can help them be open with you and how you can be open with others. And think about how we as a church need to encourage one another and build one another up in the Lord and not just look for ways to condemn one another. The last thing I want to say is Ravi Zacharias, uh, as Randall said, I don't know his heart. Um, Clearly, this was a big issue in his life. Uh, One of the things that comes about when people of influence have these big downfalls is, what do we do with their work? And uh, the last thing I want to say is, he has some good words. uh, And I think his words can be extrapolated apart from who he is. But know that he didn't take his own advice very well. And uh, as a result, uh, it means that maybe some damage control needs to be done on his work. Um, I think of some great books that he wrote that may need to be rewritten now from someone else's perspective, um, where they can build on what he did, but maybe refashion it in a way that um, it can still carry some weight in our culture and in our world. So thank you guys for being here on Faith and Culture Now, and we'll see you next time. Okay, thanks so much.